just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Women with Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today I'm joined by Dr. Therese Coffey, the Work and Pension Secretary. The MP for Suffolk Coastal entered Parliament in 2010, where she quickly gained a reputation of being a straight talker and a social butterfly, famed within the Tory party for her karaoke parties. After serving as a junior minister in DEFRA, Therese was promoted to Cabinet last year after Amber Rudd quit over Brexit. Although Coffee campaigned for Remain in the EU referendum, she has since fully signed up to Boris Johnson's Brexit plan. She's also won plaudits for her no-nonsense approach to politics. In a 2019 profile, a journalist wrote of Coffee, she seems to me wholly unspun insofar as any politician can be. And, with the usual accuracy of reshuffled predictions, she was recently in the news as one of the ministers deemed to be on the chopping block in the Prime Minister's reshuffle. But I'm pleased to report, not least for the sake of this podcast, that she is still very much here and currently in the Spectator office. So thank you very much for joining us today, Therese. On this podcast, what we like to do is to begin by talking about what you're doing before you went into politics. So you were born in Lancashire, but you grew up in Liverpool, the child of two teachers. Liverpool isn't particularly well known for creating Tories. So did you have a political upbringing? Well, actually, as a child, uh, I moved there when I was the age of six to proper Liverpool, as you would call it. I did actually have a Conservative MP, which people may find hard to believe nowadays. Um, But that all changed rather quickly. I guess my mother has always been Conservative. On my dad's side, they were very much a Labour family. And I don't know what point my dad started voting Conservative, but it was actually my sister who kind of got into politics ahead of me. I then got involved and got the bug as a, as, as a political activist then. And growing up with your parents, was politics something that was discussed much around the dinner table? No, I don't think so. The only thing, uh, I suppose, uh, my mother used to religiously have the Today programme on every morning. But not particularly. The, the time when I realised politics mattered was... Both my parents were teachers in Liverpool. It was that famous thing of the militants sending around the uh, redundancy notices. And that's kind of when I realised politics mattered. That's when I also thought the rest of the country was doing better. And that was thanks to Margaret Thatcher and the Conservative Party, the Conservative government. And that's kind of got what me going in interest, but it, I didn't get active for a, for a little while longer. Now, you were a practising Catholic, so was yours a religious upbringing? Was Christianity something from an early age? Yes, absolutely. I am a practising Catholic. I think in my entire life, I've missed Mass on a Sunday six times. If ever I do any ministerial visits, it's always very important to make sure that time gets slotted in. Probably the funniest one was when I had security guards when I went to Mass in both Metz Cathedral and somewhere in, in Italy for G7 things. It's just a part of my life and I don't wear it on my sleeve uh, particularly, but uh, it's, it is something that is clearly part of my values. Now, sticking with your childhood, what were your ambitions when you were young, say five to eight? We've had some interesting answers to this question from previous uh, interviewees, some going simply for who they were planning to marry that, at that age. So the earliest thing I can remember wanting to do was to be a nun mechanic. Oh, wow. I've, I've never come across a nun mechanic. <laughs> so I felt you could combine being a nun with a mechanic. <laughs> and <laughs> did you tell anyone about this? A careers advisor? Your parents, did it receive much positive um, 
acceptance. I think that uh, it was probably just... Uh, of course, parents are quite keen, religious parents may always worry about their child sort of having a vocation into whether being a priest or a nun. But actually, its uh, I don't think it was ever taken seriously. But I've always had an interest in sorts of engineering. And in, in although I studied chemistry at university, I uh, in some ways should have really done engineering because my, my favourite TV show for a long time was Scrap Heat Challenge. So it's just stuff like that. Um, now you mentioned there that you, you what you studied at university so you were at University College London at that point then going into chemistry what did you think you were going to end up doing did you have political ambitions at that age I didn't have political ambitions at all no I had at one point wanted to be a solicitor or a lawyer and then I went to work in the solicitors and decided there was no way I could do that uh, I did some summer experience and I got the bug for chemistry and it was connected to my love of colourful art. And so that's uh, when I was doing various things there. They said, well, you need to do chemistry if you want to do that. And um, that's what got me going that way. I think um, the joy of uh, a science, there aren't many scientists in Parliament, and very few of us have got science PhDs, is that it does prepare you well for challenging evidence, being systematic in your approach, having an evidence-based approach. And I did do student politics. I enjoyed it very much. But I kind of never thought I'd be good enough to be an MP. Now, on graduating from university, you worked in a few places, BBC being one of them. Um, Mars, so at what point did you decide that you wanted to be a Member of Parliament? Well, it was actually while I was... um, quite early on um, working and this is when we had a candidate uh, back in Liverpool who I just didn't think was very good and I thought well I could do better than that. <laughs> what were they lacking? Emotional intelligence. It's, it was it was a great shame but it just showed me that having seen uh, at different points of university it was quite clear uh, and also in the wider student scene you know, there are people I know from those days who are MPs today in fact fellow members of the cabinet and they were absolutely ambitious to do it. And I just enjoyed it, did different things. And I just thought, well, I can do better than that. And uh, that's what got me going. You know, if I'd grown up Labour, I could well have been a trade unionist in my life. There's an element there. but uh... And then there's a lot of things that have to happen. You have to have confidence. You have to have tenacity. And that is key to just going through that long haul. There are some people who are brilliant and get into politics very quickly. There are some people who are brilliant and never quite make it. And I'm fortunate along the way to have always been nice to people. And I find that helps because they want you to succeed. And when things don't go well, they will try and help you. You mentioned their emotional intelligence. And I just wondered, obviously, you've been involved in the Tory party for a fairly long period of time. Under different leaders, the Tory party has been depicted as often being heartless or out of touch. So did you feel that in, in going it, into it that one of the things you could bring was I suppose changing that and showing that there is emotional intelligence I I wonder what it was that you thought well I think um, as I say to candidates and wannabe MPs you've got to be prepared to don uh, kind of like a metal helmet to it can be challenging I think on aspects one of the things that I think a lot of Conservatives find terribly frustrating as being accused of being uh, heartless and similar is actually it's our we know our conservative activists, they are the ones out there raising the money for Matt Millen cancer, doing all those different things as well. 
and actually one of the things I keep saying to people regularly is actually Labour and Conservatives are united on far more of the outcomes they want to see they just may have different ways they think it's best to achieve it so it's an element of um, frustration at time and the other challenge is that we tend to be the bank manager who says no to people you know the credit card has been maxed out no you can't and that's not always very popular to say to people and leads us uh, at times for people to want to try and portray us in a particular way and I don't genuinely believe that is in any way the philosophy of our Conservative Party but we have undoubtedly uh, at times um, done things which we then rode back on. Now you stood as a candidate in Wrexham a seat that is actually now Conservative but when you stood there you came a slightly distant third we, we could say so I wondered what was it like campaigning and a no-hoper seat? Well Wrexham is actually where my mother was brought up so I've got family there and at the time she lived in Chester so it was very convenient to do it and Wrexham is a great town that has traditionally voted Labour and actually a lot of the things on which we had in common they just almost if they if we had a, a particular issue they wouldn't have realised that the popular policy they liked was actually Conservative if that makes sense. So I actually spent quite a lot of time in that campaign, campaigning next door, to try and make sure that we got a gain, which we did, in Clwyd West. Uh, Because that's the other thing, that um, working with activists in Wrexham was great, but what more importantly was trying to make sure that we won seats nearby. After Wrexham, you go on to be selected for your current seat, which I think we can safely call a Tory safe seat, though I know everyone says there's no such thing as a safe seat. What was the selection process like for such a competitive seat? Because we've just seen it in the recent election, and you know, in the build-up, uh, a lot of hopes and competition when, you, when you're going for these and you speak before. If I could take you a slightly step back, if that's OK. Having decide- made the decision to want to try and become an MP... I actually failed my first parliamentary assessment board. So I was told to go away and get more experience. And that's fine. I was pretty young. And how, then, how old were you? I'm trying to think. I think it was in the year 2000. So that's 28, 29, I suppose. And then so I campaigned a lot for Richard Bennion in 2001. And I'd done my calculations. And I had almost come to a conclusion that it was unlikely that I would become an MP just on how many people churn as it were and that's why I put my name forward to become an MEP because I thought this was a clever way to get my CV in front of 83 constituency chairmen in the selection process and to my surprise they then selected me pretty low down and so in 2005 what happened then I did try to get selected in various seats around the country didn't make it so I ran for the European Parliament again uh, which I came very close to becoming an MEP. So it was after that, and by that time, I'd stopped work at Mars, which allowed me to work full-time on being an MEP. And ironically, the MP expenses scandal is really the reason I probably got into Parliament. Because at the time, there was the amount of abuse being held at Conservative politicians, and the MEPs meant our vote was not great. But it also led to a big change in our parliamentary party. So that's a long roundabout way of saying I've actually tried to take calculations along the way. uh, And then I landed with good fortune and also benefited, I think, from David Cameron's 50-50 rule in the selection process. 
So at that point, uh, we went straight to the final six. And, you know, I have got people in my association um, who openly admit to me now that they never, ever thought they were going to vote for a woman. And then I won on the first ballot in that selection process. And I think a lot of this is about making sure that we try and continue to not have all women shortlisted in any way. I completely disagree with that. But support women and give them that chance to put themselves in front of our Conservative members. Now, you were quite quickly promoted. You were a member of the Culture Select Committee, but then onto that, a PPS to Michael Fallon and an assistant whip. Um, obviously, all, all three very interesting roles to have, but I just wondered on a probably a curious journalist level, assistant whip, probably quite good for knowing everyone's business? Well, you get to know your flock, as they're called, reasonably well. I think... Um... The the secret of the whip's office is that they meet daily and they share information. But actually, a large part of what whips do is very much fundamental HR. So Parliament can be a very lonely place as well. Despite the... And it's I always liken it to being like a beehive. People are doing all sorts of things all the time. And part of the role of a whip, in my view, is to look out for people in your flock on a more personnel sort of uh, element. So it's not all just about gossip, Katie. It's uh, far from it. And then you were deputy leader of the House of Commons uh, in 2015. Was that a tough brief or...? Well, you go from a situation where you're part of this quite intimate team and then it was just me and Chris Grayling. And that's just a very different experience. And there is a good reason why the role of deputy leader isn't around today because... It's just sporadic, and I'm, I'm never quite sure why um, Labour created it in the first place. But, um, you know, I made the role my own, introduced the gateway process for legislation and different things like that. We had all sorts of fun and games. Do you go to the lobby briefing in the courtroom? Yes, but you recently now go to after the government changed where lobby is. So basically, I tried, I found uh, that room and the battles we had, and I have to admire Chris Grayling for doing this, to get, that used to just be a, a bit of a, a storage area, and we managed to get it unlocked and back into use as um, as offices for uh, for us then, which it then became part of Dexu and now has this other thing. So oh, there are so, all so, sorts yes, of fun the, and games. Yeah. So the new lobby room, oh, right, yeah, there we go. Then you were, uh, you were a minister for, in DEFRA, so that was your first policy role, and also a time when I think the Conservative Party was in trouble in various places and there was almost this sense that the best way to get out of a hole was to go green and and I think there was an extra focus to look at how the party could be environmental while you were there. Yes, um, we didn't talk enough about the environment in our 2017 election, I don't think. And clearly we've um, learned some lessons from that because actually the amount of work that we have done on improving the environment, of course these are still ongoing. We're genuinely world-leading on many of these matters and influencing people around the world, particularly through um, working with uh, other Commonwealth countries is a real important part of uh, reaching some of the most magnificent environment and how we protect that for the future. How do you feel when groups like Extinction Rebellion almost have this, um, I say like a, a moral monopoly on, on the environment when the, like, as you say, I think if you look at just the facts I ignore of it, them. Yeah, you're not tempted They're to join uh, so. Now, during your time in DEFRA, you had to take some time off because you were ill. Can you tell us a bit about what happened? Because it did have some repercussions. Yes, um, I had a ear infection that went bizarrely very badly wrong. 
and no particular reason for it, but uh, I was still doing my work in DEFRA. I was doing debates. I did a speech. At the same time, what had happened is a particular infection had gone inwards. I ended up getting something called mastoiditis, meningitis and a brain abscess. And it all kind of happened within a few days. And uh, although I presented myself to the NHS a few times, it was the last time um, I went in. I'd even managed to go and vote in the local elections and everything. And so I think, because I, I was answering all their questions properly, they didn't quite get what it was. And if it, cause it was on the left side of my brain, that was the bit that was uh, kind of aspects of memory elements. If it had been the right-hand side of my brain, it would have had a much more physical effect. So it was quite shocking to then realise quite how close to death I came. It's also, the best way of saying it is... Um, just bizarre things like when I was at hospital I had to kind of relearn things so I did loads of duke and stuff like that but I couldn't remember what slippers were I I had to I asked my sister what are these called so I've gone through a whole way of rebuilding my memory and as a consequence the kind of things that have changed I have to be a lot better about writing things down and stuff like that but um you know, you don't want to talk about this, particularly at the time, because you're ill and you need to recover. I think constituents didn't understand, but I'm, I'm quite open about talking it now because actually it's just one of those things where it just makes you realise how special life is when you come close to potentially losing it. But I've had to adjust some of my ways of working in order to accommodate that. Now, let's talk about your promotion to Cabinet. You w- were called to to your new role after Amber Rudd quit, actually, I think, about five days after being on this podcast, but we don't think the same thing is <laughs> you go- warn me about going, to, going to happen to you. Well, it depends what happens at the end of this podcast. <laughs> yeah. we'll, we'll see if we can keep this up for DWP, uh, Secretaries of State. Department for Worker Pensions, in the past, that role can be seen as a bit of a hospital pass. When Amber Rudd had it, some people asked by some of such a tiny um, majority was given a role which doesn't, in a way, as a department, generate more negative headlines than positive ones a lot of the time, particularly under Tory government. So I wondered, how have you found the scrutiny that comes with leading that type of department and the criticism it often gets in terms of you know, people who are seen to have fallen through the cracks of the system? Well, I want to pay tribute to my predecessors, you know, stepping onto their shoulders and all the hard work that they have done. And there's no doubt that some of the challenges we undertook in coalition government and then subsequently were difficult things for people who were used to the legacy system, didn't particularly like the legacy system. And I don't think you'll find many, even stakeholders, uh, keen to go back to the legacy system. But I think actually the approach that was taken was fundamentally in tune with the British, the British public, that you'll be better off working than not working, unless you cannot work. And that has to be the basis and the principles under which all our policies for DWP and supporting people has to come. But there's no doubt that at times when things go wrong, they can go very badly wrong. And the implication for an individual can be significant. So that's why we want to continue to try and improve, always learning from what we do, Uh, And that's something I'm very much trying to put as a big emphasis in my time as uh, Secretary of State. Now, moving to the present day and the final part of this podcast, I just wanted to touch on potential stumbling blocks in your career. And I'm going to have to ask you about this because it happened at a Spectator party. There is a photo of you that I know you have seen, as have many others, in the Spectator garden smoking a cigar. And it's quite dark and there appears to be what could have been, may not have been, an alcoholic drink spilt on your top. 
it was published in several places. At one point, I think you actually thought I took the photo with slight misunderstanding that the records show I did not. But I wondered, given that it attracted some negative criticism at the time, do you regret that? So I can't change the photo, so I don't worry about it. It's there. It will always be used. So I tend to find most uh, media outlets... When they are trying to say something nice about you, they'll get find a really nice photo. And when they don't like what you're doing, the worst photo possible will come up. I remember at the time, journalists that I knew saying, oh, that's great, shows you're a whatever. It's just, like, it's just a nightmare photo. But I, you kind of move on. I know it gets used a lot on social media and it's just one of those things. But I have learned some lessons from it. Not to smoke cigars at the spectator or... <laughs> Try not to smoke cigars in public. Uh, <laughs> Best way to put it. I didn't smoke that many cigars either, but I do enjoy it when I do. And then... Uh, Did you have any family get in touch? No. I think the best way to describe it is quite interesting how a lot of things work. There's just radio silence from everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody wants to ever sort of bring it up. And I'm the one who often would bring it up. It's like, oh, that photo. Just... But I don't tend to dwell on it, Katie. But okay, uh... that, On that note, I'm going to move to a, a happier question, which is actually one of the things you are famous for in the Conservative Party are your legendary karaoke parties. We hear a lot about them. You don't actually invite journalists to them, or at least I will actually be offended if now if I find out you do. No, I do not. <laughs> but over the years, I think you have had, you know, senior cabinet ministers attend please i wondered if you could explain to our listeners what's involved in a coffee karaoke party and, and any particular highlights <laughs> so this started uh, for a way to me for me to celebrate my 40th birthday and then i just started doing it every year and it's it's a chance and the reason why journalists aren't allowed uh, in fact, only MPs are allowed with their partners. Occasionally, a few peers get invited. And in my first year, I actually got, had a couple of Labour MPs come as well. But uh, it's just a chance for people to relax. There are very few places in Parliament that MPs can be themselves because you're constantly, you know, somebody got smartphone camera and all the rest of it. So cameras are not allowed, all that sort of thing. Or, you know, we just tell people to behave themselves, as it were, in, in terms of cameras. And, yes, I mean... Probably the most famous one is actually the one, the reconciliation karaoke. It was a post-referendum. And it then happened to be right in the middle of the leadership contest. And people were just let, enjoying letting their hair down. George Osborne came to one because he kind of got dragged in by somebody and I just shoved a microphone in his hand. So he ended up singing with Liz Truss, um, what's that, Lunchbox Louis. Bills. I've got bills to pay. Even though he didn't know the words. And of course he's famous for his rapping rather than... Uh, of course. What's your go-to karaoke song? What well, I do tend to do, Don't Stop Me Now, but one of the challenges for women doing karaoke, that's just my advice, men actually have a higher tone than women do. So as a consequence, uh, women, when they tend to sing male songs or male vocalist songs, often drop an octave because they struggle. But I have to say that it's um, just one of those things where I like the karaoke song where everybody can join in. So Sweet Caroline's a regular favourite uh, that happens that everybody can sing along to. Then we've got some people who are brilliant singers, but different styles. Um, you mentioned your post-referendum karaoke party. Does that mean that you played a role in bringing Remainers and Brexiters back together through the joy of music? Absolutely. 
I did two things for that because uh, what was the two? The first of all, the first day back, I made sure that we had a TV in the members' bar so that people would come together and watch football. It didn't help that Iceland defeated England and we were kicked out, so that was a bit miserable. And then the karaoke was definitely a healing moment. Now, final few questions. First of all, you've served now under three... What's your karaoke song, by the way? It's actually Beatles, A Day in the Life. Oh. But um, it's not really a crowd pleaser, I have to say. <laughs> it tends to be at the end of the session when most people are leaving. Or I've had people walk out. Now, final few things. You are, as you mentioned earlier, final three questions. You're a practicing Catholic. I wanted to ask you about faith in politics. Recently, it's been in the headlines because we had Rebecca Long-Bailey, who came under some flack in the contest because it became clear she had Catholic views, even though she said that they wouldn't influence her Labour policy on things like abortion. You voted against same-sex marriage. So I was wondering, is in, do you feel as though it's difficult to combine faith with politics these days? People find it hard to accept that something is a conscious issues, or, or do you think we are accepting of it? I think Conservative MPs have an easier time of it. There's a lot more free votes. I don't get the impression in the Labour Party, there are some very brave people in the Labour Party who have stuck to the values that they hold on particular issues, kind of life ethical issues. Without doubt, the proudest day of my life as an MP was September the 11th, 2015, when we worked together as a team and defeated the second reading of the Assisted Suicide Bill comprehensively. But I appreciate that this is a... You know, these are sensitive issues, so I don't want it to sound like I'm gloating. And I recognise how people hold these particular issues very strongly, and so do I. But I'm also a Democrat. There are certain things which I would like the law to change on, but I accept that's not the majority, and it's not going to happen. You know, I respect the fact that same-sex marriage is now perfectly legal, so I'm not going to stand in the way in any way of trying to undermine it. You know, I think having faith is... um, is just a part of who I am. I can imagine it will be very hard for anyone who's a full-on practising Catholic probably to ever get selected as a party leader or elected. And yeah, people like Tim Farron went through that instead of just potentially being open about his views and not worrying about it or, or whatever. Would it be difficult for you to visit a Catholic Prime Minister? Well, our current Prime Minister was baptised Catholic. But I, I think he'd be the first to admit uh, he, at one point, uh, he certainly switched to Church of England. So, uh, uh, but yeah, I think it is challenging for people that, and it's quite an interesting. I mean, we are a very secular society, and we are very conscious of that. So, now I know we've got to end this podcast. So the two final things, and I, you may not answer this one, but there's rumours in the in the news that one of the things in the budget could be look at pensioner tax relief. I wondered if that's something you you think would be a good idea in terms of looking at the burden. Lots of people think that the tax burden, in a way, we should be looking at pensioners rather than the working age. Tax matters are a matter for the Chancellor. There we go. I thought that might be it. You, I think you should be able to answer this question, at least, which is a question we ask everyone on this podcast, which is, what is the worst advice you have ever been given? Make sure you get your picture taken at a spectator party. <laughs> Thanks, Therese. Stop me.